0: Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have episode 207. Tonight, we are going to answer some great listener questions we got recently. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and read the first question and we'll go ahead and do our usual give and take. So this great question is from Kristen. She says, hi there. I came across your show via Airwave as I listened to another show on the network and I'm so glad I found you. I have a tricky question and would appreciate any insight. I have owned my home in Los Angeles for the last five-ish years, and the value has jumped. I owe about 470000 on the mortgage, and it's worth about 950000 With mortgage interest rates so low, my current rate is 2.8%. What are your thoughts about doing a cash-out refinance and investing the cash into stocks? Thanks in advance for any guidance. Kristen. Andrew, what are your thoughts on Kristen's question? Should we define a cash-out
1: refinance first?
0: Sure. Tell them, tell them what it is. Maybe you should thank guy. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. I have never worked with the cash out refis, but I believe the, the way that they work is when you sell your home or when you do a refinance, you take out the difference from what the home is worth. First, what you owe, and then you owe an additional money on top of that. So, in other words, in her circumstance, she would be able to get around four hundred eighty thousand dollars out of her home because that's the difference between what she owes and what the value of the home is currently. Which means that she would take out another another mortgage, in essence, of four four hundred eighty thousand at two point eight percent. So. Her question is that would you take that refinance and reinvest it in, into the stock market? So, what do you, what would you do?
1: The problem is that was the logic a lot during the mid 2000s. And it especially peaked up during 2006, 2007. The idea was that houses and home prices always go up and they completely, totally did until the time that they didn't. And so, if you were somebody who did something like a cash out refinance, you now owed more money and if you didn't have that money on on deck, basically, to to pay back now you, you have higher payments and nothing to show for it. So as an example, if you would have taken that four hundred thousand, put it in the stock market at the time, the same time that the stock market crashes, so there's the value of your home, you still got these higher the payments to pay from having a refinance. And if you wanted to sell out your stocks, you could be you'd be selling at a loss. I just for me being so risk averse and and knowing and having that be such a recent memory of what could go wrong when you take money out of a mortgage and use it to put it in the stock market. I'm just very against something like that.
0: I, would probably agree with that. I think so. A, a, a couple things to think about if you're looking at doing something like this. So, first of all, you already know what your hurdle rate is. You're going to have to earn at least better than 2.8 percent, whatever your refinance would be on the mortgage. So, let's say it comes back at three and a half percent because maybe rates go up when you do this, or maybe they go down a little bit and you get a better rate. At the minimum, you're going to have to earn at least that to make. Your money back. The the other thing, I guess there's two other things that kind of pop into my head. Number one is at the 470,000 that you still owe on a mortgage, it depends on what your payment is. Let's say it's a thousand dollars a month, just throwing out a number. Let's say it's a thousand dollars a month and you take on this, in essence, new mortgage. Your payment's not going to stay at a thousand dollars a month. It's probably going to go up and you have to weigh whether that is something that still will work with your budget. So that's something to consider. The other thing to consider is that now let's say that you do the refinance, you take all the money out and you're sitting on $480,000 and you with a hole burning a hole in your pocket. You got to do something with it. Putting $480,000 into the stock market right away for me is a scary proposition because A, if you lump sum all that into the stock market right now, you're basically going to have to find 10 to 100 great ideas. And that's going to be really hard to do. And Andrew and I struggled to do that once a month. So let alone try to do that 200, you know, 100 or 10 times or 20 times. That's, that's a tall order. So then you have to consider, let's say you dollar cost average over the course of a year and you're going to put in, what did that be? $40,000 a month, which is, it's a lot. It's a big chunk of change too, of course, but it's also, depending on how you want to split that up, you're still having to come up with more ideas. So if you come up with one idea a month and you put in $40,000 a month, okay, fine. And that's all fine and dandy. But when you're trying to work with all that, it's a lot to manage. But then you also have the other point of fact is that if you put $40,000 in one month and you still have 440000 more to put in over the course of the next 11 months, you got to put that money somewhere. So if you put it in a savings account, and it's earning with that kind of money, you could probably get your interest rate up to maybe 1%. Or if you're lucky, maybe 2%. That's still less than what you're making than what you're paying on your interest for your loan at your current loan rate. And so I, th- I would think that there would be different options available and this is something we talked about with the 401k a few weeks ago. What about the idea of, let's say that your mortgage is a thousand dollars a month and you want to refinance and your mortgage is going to go up to $1,500 a month and stake, instead of taking on the debt and then sitting on all that money and trying to figure out what you want to invest in. Why don't you take the $500 if you can afford it or maybe more and throw that into market every month and buy something with that every month. And use that as a way to build your wealth because the other thing you, you want to consider is the opportunity cost of the loss of not having that option. God forbid something goes wrong and you lose your job or you need that money for something else. And now you've put it all in the stock market. Now you have to do other things to take all that money out and it, it costs you money to do all those things. So there's other considerations to think about. And I, I would think, for me personally, I would want to look at not taking on more debt to put money into the stock market because there's so many things that can go wrong in the stock market. And I'm not trying to be, you know, captain negative here, but I just, I'm trying to think about the positive then and the negatives. And you have to think about, it'd be exciting to have half a million dollars to be able to put into the stock markets. That's a big chunk of change. And that could really do some things, but if you choose poorly, or if you, buy at the wrong time over the next year, then you could really set yourself up for a, a big hurt. And it also depends on what kinds of things you buy. If you're buying middle-of-the-road companies, safe, stable boring, air quote, boring companies like a a Walmart or Target or something along those lines, you're going to do fine. But if you start throwing money at some of these super exciting, shiny objects that are in the stock market that everybody's talking about today, but a year and a half from now are the dogs of the Dow kind of thing, then it could set yourself up for a lot of hurt. For me personally, you got to remember, I'm a little older. I'm also more conservative. So, for me personally, I would rather look at other options that can still get me into the market and, and put good money in the market. A 500 to a thousand bucks a month is nothing to sneeze at, and over a very short amount of time, that could build up quickly and can add up to some serious returns. Plus, it gives you the opportunity to continue doing that over the life of how long ever long you want to invest. Whereas, if you do the cash out refi, now you're stuck in that house too for another ten or fifteen. Years years too, before you can pay it off, depending on what your mortgage is and what your payments are. We don't have all the information here for Kristen, but I think those are some things that I think of that maybe are a little more alternative ideas than just doing a cash out refi and, and using the money that way. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And a lot of it comes down to this idea that you only want to put money into the market that you don't need in the next five to 10 years. And the problem with Personal finance is its so personal, and the other problem is it is we can plan for how we think our life's going to be five years from now, ten years from now. that doesn't make it happen. If you look around the the people around you, how many people do you have gone through a divorce or had some crazy medical thing pop up? something like seventy percent of bankruptcies had to do with medical bills yeah, it's ridiculous so what are the factors a, a surprise layoff? The pandemic, right? So all these things that just can pop up out of nowhere. And that's really the big risk you take when you try to do something tricky and try to speed up your getting rich process by taking on debt. It works fine and the math works great, but life doesn't work like math does all the time. And Mm -hmm. so when that downside is so potentially huge and you have to face this idea of, if I just hold on while the market's going down, I'm going to do fine, but I can't hold on because I need to sell because this came up. So that's why you never want to borrow to go into the market because it could force you to make decisions like this. And at the end of the day, that's that's the worst thing that you could do in the stock market is to take it out when everybody else is selling too, because maybe they're all dealing with similar types of things. So that's why you, you want to put money in the market that you can afford to lose And just let it sit and let it compound. And that's how you'll do well with building wealth in the stock market.
0: Amen, brother. That's fantastic advice. He said that very well.
1: Thank you. We'll move on to the next question then. I'm going to read this one here. It says, hi, Andrew and Dave. Been listening to the podcast for over a year now. Love the content and the chemistry you guys have. He loves learning about investing so much that he decided to move careers. That's really cool. Enough about me The Intelligent Investor in chapter 15, the commentary, Jason Zwieg basically says, as an amateur, your best bet is to put your money in mutual funds and keep no more than 10% of your portfolio in direct equities. He says, I know you guys love this book and use a lot of the principle it teaches. And from what I've heard on the podcast, neither of you have capital in activity managed mutual funds. Is there any reason why you don't follow this rule of thumb and why don't either of you invest in mutual funds or promote mutual funds in the podcast? Keep up the great work, Rob from London.
0: Hey Rob from London that was a great question and thank you for referring to the chapter in our favorite book we did turn our pages in the hymnal before we came on to to read that quote <laughs> we did we are that kind of nerd and so we did read his commentary and by the way that is one of the gems of the book is you get all the great stuff from Ben Graham but you also get a lot of the great stuff from Jason as well he's one of the one of the best finance writers out there if you've not read any of his stuff i highly recommend you check it out it's fantastic and it's great. Great commentary to to the book as well. He did in the book he did talk about he talked about kind of two processes. One was doing a paper trading account for a year, and then if that does well for you, then you consider start actively in, investing in equities. And if you are not comfortable equi- acting investing in equities, then he recommended doing index funds and ten percent in direct equities. Like, basically individual stocks and that kind of thing. And I think that's great advice. And we've talked about this before. There's nothing wrong with doing that. For some reason, there's this... Stereotype that you either have to be all in stocks or or none, and you can mix and match however works best for you. Andy Schuler, our partner, he talks all the time about different ETFs that he's bought when he wants to start exposure in a space. For example, prior to COVID, he I think he bought jets. Because he wanted to get into uh, some of the airlines and dip his toe into that. And it's a great way to do that kind of thing. And there are so many different uh, ETFs and index funds out there available. For me personally, the reason why I've stayed away from mutual funds is without being too blunt fees. They're just, they're expensive. They're actively managed funds and they're expensive. And when I say expensive, I compare mutual funds, it's changed a little bit. In response to what's going on with ETFs and index funds, but generally there are higher fees, two, 3% sometimes that get get taken out of your returns and then they're actively managed. So there, there are lots of activity inside the funds. And I just don't feel like the returns on those funds have been Anything to write home about. Now, of course, there are fund managers out there that do a great job, and I'm not trying to bash any of the fund managers out there, but studies have shown that index funds and ETFs earn better returns over a longer period of time than mutual ha- funds have. And when you take fees into consideration, it, it beats them even more. So for me, that's why I've never really talked about them and I've always been against them. So what are your thoughts on them?
1: Yeah, I think it's obvious that ETFs are superior to mutual funds based on the fees. And even if you look at Kathy Wood's ETF, it's basically what a mutual fund used to be, except now you can buy it as an ETF. And there's just so much that next evolution of cost uh, structure has has now moved towards ETFs. And obviously, people are going to want to go where there's less fees. And so that's why I think mutual funds used to be a lot more popular when we first started out. And lately, it's been more Talking about ETFs, um, index, and stuff like that. But yeah, that's kind of why I'm in that camp. I think when you look at that mix between how comfortable do you feel between individual stocks and index funds or ETFs, whatever that looks like, it goes back to that beginning of the episode where we say your personal comfort level, what you find to be comfortable from a risk perspective for me, because I've been very involved with the stock market and with the research I'm doing on these picks, I'm very comfortable with putting my whole net worth into them. And that's what I do. I recommend these stocks for the e and over 95, 96, 97, whatever number is percent of my net worth also goes into these same picks. And so that for me, it sounds conservative to me and I'm comfortable with it. To somebody else that might sound crazy. So you really have to figure out where you stand on that and position your portfolio that way, but also be familiar with what are the possibilities and what are the positives and negatives to doing stuff like that. And hopefully we're able to present those in our
0: show and the various episodes we've done. Yeah. I think thinking about some of those ideas, you really need to, you really need to think about what you're comfortable doing in, If you really enjoy the game of investigating companies and learning the ins and outs of the companies and how they operate and their prospects and their competitive moats and what competition there is among the different companies, if all that stuff is super interesting to you and you love doing that stuff, then looking at individual stocks is something for you. But if you know that you want to invest in you don't want to spend that time or that stuff just leaves you cold, then there's all kinds of great opportunities in vehicles that you can use to still take advantage of all the great things that the stock market has to offer that allow you to get the great returns that you want, but not have to go through, not go through, but not have to do all the work that Andrew and I do. We do it because we love it. We do it because we like it. It's fun and exciting. It, it, Helps us wake up every morning. Some people they just don't like that, and that's okay. There's that's there's not all of us are built the same. We all have different risk levels. We all have different interest levels, and there's lots of people out there that that put money in index funds or ETFs and do it religiously every month, and they retire very wealthy and they're very happy with spending five minutes a day or five minutes every month looking at their portfolio, and that works for them, and that's awesome. That, that for me, that's I. I want more, and so I want to do more. I want to look at more. I want to be more active about it, and I want to have more control and more say over it. And so that's what works for me. But it really comes down to what works for you, and. Andrew and I will never sit here and tell you that this is the right way and that's the right way and this is the wrong way and that's the wrong way. We'll just give you the ideas that we think will work best for us. And and if you like what we're talking about, then you'll listen to us and you'll follow along. And But we also will talk about other options as well. The, the bottom line is it doesn't matter that you follow everything that we do the way that we do it. it. Really, it comes down to learning the principles and learning how the stock market works and learning how to put your money to work for you so that you don't have to work so hard someday. And it doesn't matter how you get there. And if it's investing in individual stocks like we do, or if it's index funds or mutual funds or your 401k, then more power to you because that's really what it comes down to. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card worth more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Okay. But that was a great question, Rob. So we appreciate you reaching out to us and letting us know about that. All right. We'll move on to the next question here. Hey, David, and Andrew. First off, thank you both for what you do. I stumbled upon your podcast with no knowledge of investing at all. Now I feel like I have the ability to set myself up for retirement. Long-term value slash dividend investing just makes sense to me. I have a few questions for you guys. This might be one more up Dave's alley. I recently invested in a bank. Woohoo. Actually, one of your e-letter picks. With the recent news of impending interest rate hikes, I've seen banking stocks plummet in the last few days. Is the interest rate hike going to be a concerning long-term problem for banks, or would this be a good time to buy more stocks and lower my cost average per share? So in a word, yes, this would be a good time to take a look at banks. When interest rates go up, that's actually a good thing for banks. Because a large majority of the income that they make is from interest rates. So there's several ways to think about this. So the first is banks make a difference. It's called net interest income. And basically what it is, it's a spread between what you borrow and what they have to pay people to loan them money. So in other words, if you pay 10% for a car loan and they pay 2% for a savings account, that 8% difference is their income. That's the money that they make. And so when banks take deposits from us, whether it's in a savings account or a checking account or money market CD, any of those kinds of things, that is raw material for them to lend out to other people to try to make money off of that money that they're lending. And so the more that they can lend and at the higher interest rates that they can lend or the bigger the spread between the rates that they can charge people for loaning them money and the rates that they have to pay to entice people to make deposits. That's how they make their, their income. That's the majority of it. depends on the bank, but it's about 50-50, maybe 60-40. It kind of depends on the bank. Other ways the banks make money is on other services that they offer, like uh, wealth management or investments or things of that nature, and they they charge fees for those things, and that's how they make money. Contrary to popular belief, they actually don't make that money from overdraft fees, so there is that. I know that's very unpopular, obviously, but... Well, they make a little. They make a little, but not as much as people think. And trust me, I work for Wells Fargo, We used to charge a lot of overdraft fees, and I know so, but that's beside the point. But when interest rates go up, that's actually a good thing for banks. And the reason why the stocks have been hitting, getting hitting lately is because it's more, I think, about some of the concerns with COVID recently. But interest rates, when, if they do go up, and when they do go up, that will be a, a boon for banks and insurance companies for sure. Couldn't you argue
1: that the more dry powder a bank has, the better higher interest rates would be for them? Let's say some of these loan to deposit ratios like almost one hundred percent. Yeah. So even if rates went higher, they don't have any. Not that they don't have any, but they don't have as much cash to lend out as maybe somebody with a much more conservative balance sheet with a lot more cash that could take advantage of the
0: higher rates and and loan out and be more aggressive with that. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a. Perfect uh, illustration. The more p- dry powder that the bank has, the better that's going to be for them in the long run. And that's why, that's really why banks have really struggled since 2007, 2009 is the interest rates have, have remained so low. During the great financial crisis in 07, 09, the rates went to almost zero and that just almost killed the banks. Now, the opposite of that is the banks, a lot of the banks were at fault for everything happening. You can't really blame, but Ever since then, the rates really never went up. And so because of that, it's really depressed the earnings ability for a lot of banks over the last, what, 10, 13 years that this has been going on. And that's why banks have actually started moving towards other forms of trying to generate revenue away from more of the traditional lending Aspect of it because they just haven't been able to generate as much income from them. Now, some of the big banks like Wells Fargo, for example, they have actually been put under an asset cap restriction. In other words, that means that the bank can only grow so big and they're not allowed to take on more uh, more. Uh, loans to drive up their asset cap because of all the bad stuff that they did a few a few years ago with all the fraudulent opening accounts and credit accounts and all that stuff and it's just been they keep stepping on you know what, just about every other week, it seems like, for a few years there. Anyway, because the Fed put a, a limit on how big the bank could get, and that also means that it puts a limit on how much money they can loan and it puts a, a limit on how much money they can make. So they've been under they've been in a penalty box for a few years and it could last for a little bit longer. But other banks like JP Morgan, for example, have just you know absolutely killed it over the last four or five years. And they've done a fantastic job. And they but they've really diversified their bank and I they've moved away from relying so much on deposits and loans to drive their revenues, and they've tried to use other aspects of the banking industry to generate revenues. Yeah, it's it's a great question, but I think banks, if interest rates do start to rise, would be a great place to look for, for opportunities.
1: I think as the way I feel personally about it, it just depending on the valuation, I think it's in general always a pretty good idea to buy banks over the long term, just because what's the one constant in an economy is bank. money. Yeah. So, you know, that the form of the bank, whether it's online or, or brick and mortar, that could change over time. But at the end of the day, money has to sit somewhere. It's got to sit at, at a bank. And so long term, this is something like, it, something that kind of opened my eyes to this. When I looked at, Buffett had that quote where he said, the companies from 30 years ago that were the top in the S&P versus the top companies today mm-hmm. they're they're way different yeah but if you look at 10 years ago like before the financial crisis there's a few kind of unicorn companies like google or oh, maybe google wasn't on there i think it's like apple and microsoft yeah they were the big boys back mm-hmm. then they're the big boys now but like the other companies that are along that the only other ones that were consistent Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Maybe JP Morgan. I can't remember if if they were there, but it's a similar kind of concept. As these things grow and they become, they they just need to stay a part of the economy. They can continue to help money flow through the economy. And so, as long as they got good balance sheets, good companies, and they trade good valuations, they could be good buys a lot of the time and not just because somebody thinks interest rates are going to go up right now.
0: Yeah, exactly. There, there's a few other advantages that, that banks offer as well. Number one is they generally are pretty stable companies that they generally don't have lots of huge fluctuations in prices and stuff. I mentioned a while ago that I had bought, um, some Palantir, which is one of the AI companies out there. And my goodness, the, the volatility in that thing is, it's, it's worse than a roller coaster. And if you can stumble there, fine. And it's again, it's a very small portion of my portfolio. So it's nothing to get excited about. But anyway, the point is that owning something like Bank of America or JP Morgan is generally far less volatile. So you're not going to wake up one day and see it down 22%. And the next day up, it's, you know, 18%. And the next day it's down 11%. You're just not going to see that kind of fluctuations. So there's that part of it. The other thing is they pay dividends and they generally pay pretty good dividends and they consistently pay dividends over very long periods of time. They also have been doing lots of share buybacks. They didn't during COVID, but they're starting to do those again. And so there's great opportunities with that. I think honestly, I think a lot of people stay away from banks simply because they are either told to, or they are afraid of Kind of the banking language. So when you look at financials for banks, it's not the same as looking at a financial for Walmart or Apple. It's, just, it's different. And if at first it could be confusing and a little bit overwhelming, but once you start to understand the language and how the banks operate, then it becomes a lot easier to, to assess them and decide whether they would be a good fit for you or not.
1: What's great about it is once you learn about it once you have that circle of competence to build on and so you don't have to learn it again. But I agree, it is, it is not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. No, no,
0: it's not. Nobody's gonna fault you if you pass on the banks. So <laughs> no, no, difficult. not at all. Not at all. But one thing I do want to point out is almost twenty percent of the S and P five hundred is financials. So if you, you know, just automatically ignore financials, you're automatically ignoring almost 20% of the S&P as a possible investment opportunity. So there is that to consider. Nothing wrong with trying to
1: expand your circle of competence over time. No, but
0: again, not trying to pressure.
1: So the last part of the question here, he says, also, I've been having a little trouble trying to determine the impact that COVID had on certain companies. For example, looking at a company like NHC, National Health Corps, Sorry, National Health Care Corporation. They are basically an elderly care company. My evaluations of the company look very promising up until 2020. Obviously, they were probably affected immensely by COVID. They were also given a lot of government aid that carried them through the year. Should I take 2020 as an outlier and be bullish on the fact they survived it and still have little debt or be worried they had to rely on government aid to make it through the rough patch? Any help would be much appreciated. Thanks again. And keep the knowledge flowing, Cody.
0: That's a great question, Cody. And I think COVID is is definitely an outlier and it has been an outlier and it probably continues to be an outlier. It appears through at least maybe the rest of this year. It's something you have to take into consideration. I know that when I've been looking at different companies over the last year or so, that a lot of them have been recently, depending on how they were impacted by COVID, are either downplaying the boost it gave them or upplaying the downturn that they took and how much they're bouncing back from it. So, for example, if there was a company that really got smacked by what happened to COVID? Maybe they were in a position where they had to shut down their operations for a period of time and things really took a hit, but then bounce back and now are, are humming along great. Then they try to average out. They'll average out their returns over the last few years and they'll talk about their income or the revenues over, over a two year period or over a three year period. A lot of people I've been noticing on earning calls have been commenting on we are now back to 2019 levels. Or we're doing better than we were in, in 2019. So it's just ignoring what happened in 2020 because it's, it was such an abnormal abnormality. And I think for me, that's what I've really been trying to do is look at each company individually and not wash over a whole sector or a whole industry and just take it on a case by case basis. So if NHC is a company that you felt was doing great in 2019, COVID hit. It obviously impacted them by what you're telling us, and it looks like they're bouncing back, then you can look and see where they were compared to 2019. And if they're bouncing back well, and the company is even doing better than they were in 2019, then obviously that was an outlier and you just treat it as such. But it could also be a situation where, I'm not saying this is the case, but it could also be a situation where it exposed a weakness in the business. And maybe they've bounced back, but maybe they're not bouncing back as well as they were before. And that might be something that you want to, w- would want to investigate further before you decide whether you want to jump in with both feet and buy the company. So those are some things that kind of popped in my mind. I'm curious to hear what Andrew has his thoughts. I think
1: it's tough. And I think in general, you don't want to like make exceptions. So as an example, like if I'm looking at, a company and I see the numbers and there's some explanation why the numbers are bad, or there's some explanation why we think they're going to rebound. Generally, you want to stick more toward the facts than anything else. But because COVID is such... It's tough because everyone has their own opinions on it. You may have even different opinions on how long they think it's going to last or what impacts they will have. And so that's why I like this idea of taking it by a case-by-case basis. So... look at a company like this you have to ask yourself a question i think the bigger question as a long-term investor is is the fact that COVID happened obviously it happened but is the fact that it happened does that affect the demand for elderly care over the long term so is this fact that we've gone through COVID could go through again or have gone through it and we're finished but whether that whether you see a future where we have a second wave third wave whatever or you see a future where it's completely behind us has what has happened so far is that going to change the behavior or the demand for elderly care and then how is that going to affect a company like this when you contrast that to maybe another example would be like an amusement park company where they had covid are it is the fact that there was COVID before keeping people from going to the amusement parks when they are open. And so a similar question, but different because we're looking at two different cases that are both heavily affected by COVID, but the fact that demand in one industry could be changed permanently regardless of what the COVID future is, whereas another demand could be, could be unaffected at all And could only be, maybe possibly only affected if we have future lockdowns. And then you could have a third company, which have been a lot of great companies where this whole thing hasn't affected them at all. In fact, it's boosted them. And so any further uncertainty is only a plus to their stock. So that's why you have to look at it a case-by-case basis. And so it is an outlier, but it's one of those weird outliers where if it changes the fundamentals of a business... And it it can be something as simple as the fact of people do not want to buy this or go to this service for any reason, and it's because of what COVID has done. It could be that simple, but that could really, I think, help you a lot in a time like this where so much is under change.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Think about, Andrew Graves gave some great examples. Think about how the movie theaters have been impacted by covid And think about how that's affected Disney Plus on the flip side of that. And both of them have been impacted by COVID, but in completely opposite directions. And it doesn't look like movie theaters, at least at this point, it doesn't look like they're bouncing back. And you compare that to what's going on with Disney Plus, and it's just continuing to excel and excel and excel. So you have to think about how that impacts The business that you're trying to analyze. And the question that Andrew asked about is elderly care demand going to be affected by what happened with COVID? now and into the future and I, I don't have that answer but that's the question you have to figure out and how that could impact this company because if that's what they're basing their business on then the it's obviously a huge impact and it's something you have to consider and that's i think the bottom line is you have to look at it case by case and ask the question Is is this had the COVID fundamentally impact how this business operates. And what it is that they offer, is that going to continue to be in demand now and into the future? And if it is, then you can move from there, analyzing the company. If it's not, then you have to decide, do you want to spend a lot of time looking at something that you're not really sure about? Or is it something you want to try to find some other opportunity out there? And I think that's really the biggest question is, is elderly care going to continue the demand for that now and into the future, and if it is, what other impacts could COVID have on that? That would affect the operations of NHc, because those are things you have to consider as well. Are they going to have to take on more staff? Are their regulatory uh, rec- uh, requirements going to be much, much stringent? More stringent? Is that going to impact their profitability of the company, the ability to get? government aid to help them with this is not a negative, but if it's something that they can only survive on that, then that could be an issue as well. So those are all questions that you want to ask. And that's, I think the the biggest thing to take away from this is trying to think beyond just the number part of it and think about the, what impacts it's had on the business and what could impact it going forward and the demand going forward. And just start making questions and then trying to figure out the answers because that's really the best way you're going to learn and figure out how this could affect you now and into the future.
1: I had a quote pop up into my head. I know it was either Buffett or Charlie Munger. I can't remember what it was exactly, but I'll just try to paraphrase. Basically, you don't get any extra points for difficult for difficulty or for solving difficult (laughs) investment problems and so there's no shame and no change really to investment results whether you pick a no-brainer business versus one that takes a million points of analysis you can hit the exact same point and so keep that in mind too if it all sounds
0: overwhelming Yeah, a ten percent return is a ten percent return. It doesn't matter. You don't get style points for picking the hard for analyzing the hardest business out there versus analyzing the easiest business out there, whatever that may be. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great quote. All right, folks, well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to send us those fantastic questions. Again, keep it coming; those are awesome stuff and we really enjoy taking the time to answer these for you and we hope you guys are getting some good takeaways from all this and some good information follow us on twitter we just started a twitter account ifb underscore podcast and it's a great way to reach out to us if you are looking to connect with us so uh, with that i'm going to go ahead and sign us out if you guys go out there and invest with the margin of safety have on safety have a great week we'll talk to you all next week
1: we hope you enjoyed this content